Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. My name is Ken, and I am the Prescott Valley Campus Pastor. Uh, thank you all for joining us, uh, worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. Whether you're in the room, for those of you participating online, or for our Prescott Valley Campus, thank you guys for checking in with us today. Uh, today, we are in week three of the book of Romans. And if you don't have one yet, we have a notebook for you. And you'll get each, at the beginning, first Sunday of each month, you'll get the content for that month. And what's in here is the text we'll talk through today. There's a section for notes for all you note takers. And most importantly, I think there's questions that are geared for application. Because we're here not just to hear the word, but we want to do what the word says. So questions you can have with your friends and talk through and how do we apply it, a life group. There's table talk questions, what are intended for you with your kids. Have some conversation starters. So if you would use one and you would like one and you don't have one, you raise your hand. We'll have an usher. We'll bring one to you. And then as I'm diving right into this because we got a lot of ground to cover, sorry. Uh, as mentioned last week, uh, throughout the series, we're going to read the text together. And so today we're in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And you are welcome to follow along or read along, but be forewarned, I am not going to read this at a cadence that's a read-along cadence. I want to read it to you the way I think Paul felt as he wrote it based on the words. So if you would please stand with me if you are able. And together, follow along, and I will read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It'll be on the screen, in your book, in your Bible. Let's jump to it. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. From the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have given us your word, preserved for thousands of years, faithfully recorded, faithful instruction given. And I pray that we will be a people who aren't just hearers of the word, but that we would do what you say through your son, through your spirit, through your word, and that we would be a people who love you well and love others well. Thank you so much that we get to follow you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. And please go ahead and have a seat. What I just want to highlight real quick before we get into the text is just Paul's tone with the church, the words he uses. I thank God for all of you. I constantly remember you. I can't wait to come to you. I long to see you. And he expresses this devotion and love to the people in Rome because he's going to tell them some hard things, things that will be offensive, things that will be hard to hear, and they need to know that they're loved. And know this. Over the next 39 weeks, however many weeks we have of this book, you are going to hear things and read things and things will be said that will hurt, that will be offensive, but they are not intended to simply hurt for the sake of hurting. They are intended to be healing. I want my doctor to tell me when I'm sick or that there's a problem. I want my financial planner to tell me, you stay on this road, you're going to be broke. We need to hear the bad news so that we can get to the good news. So keep that in mind over the next few weeks. Jason has that job to tell you all the bad news. I get the good news. So Today, what we're going to do is we're going to start with verse 9, and we're going to define the gospel of Jesus. Then we're going to see how it impacted Paul. We're going to look at its implications, and then what are you supposed to do about it now that you understand its implications? And as we learned last week, the term gospel did not originally refer to Jesus. Right? It referred to Caesar Augustus. It was the gospel of Caesar. So what is the gospel? So let's start here in verse 9. God, whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son. This is what we're going to look at today is the gospel of his son. What is it? He is my witness how constantly I remember you. So if you have one of these books, if you flip this first page over, you can go right to it. This is where you'll take some notes today. If you're a note taker you're going to see this. So what we're going to do for the first half of this is we're going to define and and provide scripture references for you for each of these. That's where you'll want to scribble some notes. And we're going to talk about each one. And this one, this part of the message is a bit academic. It's going to explain what these things are, why they're important. Uh, So have lots, get your scribbling fingers ready. We're going to talk about first how Jesus came from heaven to earth. Now, this passage, Micah, was a prophecy about Jesus. Jason referenced this one the week before. But we're going to look in John chapter 1. And John was one of Jesus' earliest followers. He was a teenager uh, at at the time of his starting to follow Jesus. And he knew him up close and personal. He even referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Teenagers tend to be a little arrogant, right? I'm sure Jesus loved everybody, but he just felt especially loved. He's special. So let's see what John says about Jesus in the first verse of his first, uh, the gospel according to him. What does he say? In the beginning was the Word. And notice it's a capital W. He is referencing Jesus. And the Word was with God, 
and the word was God. This is the first time we see like an, uh, an allusion to the Trinity, right? We have him with God. We have him. He was God, right? The idea of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here we see Father, Son, and Jesus is God in the flesh. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. What I want to highlight with here is that Jesus did not just come on the scene with his birth. Jesus has been around since the beginning. He was with God and he was God. And nothing has been made without, including you and me. We are here because of him. Let's keep, Jesus didn't just show up like Muhammad showed up one day or like John the Baptist showed up one day. Right? John the Baptist didn't exist pre-existence in the beginning. Jesus did. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He was in heaven with God before he showed up here. And when he came, what did he do? He lived. This is what Jesus did. He lived a sinless life. We've got these verses here. Isaiah is a prophecy. But we're going to look at 1 John. Not John 1, 1 through 3, but 1 John. This is a letter that John wrote many years after what we just read. And he's going to describe to you what he sees in Jesus. And I want you to notice the, the, the types of words he uses. Let's go to 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which is what we just heard, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. That life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which we just read. So he's kept this, his story hasn't changed for decades and has appeared to us. This matters that he appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at his words. We've heard, seen with our eyes, looked at, our hands have touched, seen it seen and heard. You cannot compare Jesus or Christianity to any of the other mythical gods and religion out there. Okay, think of the Norse gods of Odin and Thor and Loki. We have the Greek gods of Zeus. Uh, We have Aphrodite, Dionysus, Poseidon. You have the Egyptian god, Ra. Those things are demonstrable fables. Chris Hemsworth pretends to be Thor. He is not Thor because there is no Thor. Okay, that, all those are stories. They're fables. Can you learn something from them? Sure. But they never showed up and walked the earth. Even people who doubt either the resurrection or don't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, serious critics of the faith and serious historians do not dispute that Jesus of Nazareth walked among us, flesh and blood, human being. He lived And he lived a special kind of life. As we said at the beginning, he was sinless. Scripture says this in many places, but the writer of Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He was tempted in every way and did not sin. This cannot be said about anyone else. And scripture repeats this again and again, that Jesus was without sin. 
We can't say it about you. We can't say it about me. You can't get through your morning coffee. Well, maybe you can get through your morning coffee, but your coffee won't help you stay out of sin. Right? You, others have lived. Other religious figures have lived. Absolutely. Muhammad lived. Moses lived. David lived. The Buddha lived. The Dalai Lama lived and really never died if you follow that line of reincarnation thinking. But none of them have lived a life without sin. And that is why Jesus, his death was with a purpose. And what was that purpose? Jesus died for our sins. And we could also say because of them. We learn through scripture that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So this was for and because of. If there wasn't a need for, if there wasn't sin, there wasn't need for a sacrifice. And what we're going to look at today is Isaiah 53. This is hundreds of years before the ministry of Jesus, hundreds of years before the invention of crucifixion. This is one of the prophecies, one of the according to the scriptures about Jesus. What does Isaiah say about Jesus' death? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's Jesus's death that brings peace and forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And, and in this horrible way that he died, crucifixion was brutal. We are shown the horrors of the effects of sin. Because I love the honesty of the Bible. It talks about the pleasures of sin. And if sin wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. But ultimately, it's harmful. It's destructive. It will destroy. It feels good in the short run. But we're playing the long game, eternity. And it is destructive. And in the cross, in the execution of Jesus and his death, we see the horrible effects of sin. The sinless man, this perfect man, came into the world and the world killed him. This is what sin does. It was the only possible outcome would have been for Jesus to die. But he didn't stay dead. He did what no one else has done. Jesus resurrected. Well, others were resurrected either by Jesus or by a miraculous uh, uh, apostle, but Jesus resurrected, and he resurrected on the third day. And what I want to show you here is Luke 24. Luke was a historian. He was a, he was a doctor and historian, and in his coming to faith, he examined the claims of the followers of Jesus. He interviewed the witnesses. He corroborated the stories, and then he recorded for us in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He wrote those and in chapter 24, what he's getting at is this is Jesus had died and been buried and he had been resurrected, but they didn't know it yet. And so these women who were followers of Jesus went to be at the tomb and they get there and the stone is rolled away from the entrance to the tomb and it's empty. And they see two angels there, these men dazzling in white. And here's what Luke records, their words to these women. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. So now they're quoting Jesus. 
The Son of Man, which is a reference to Jesus, must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. The third day, executed Friday, in the tomb Saturday, rose Sunday. Not necessarily three days later, but on the third day. And this is the crux of the Christian faith. Our faith does not hinge on the life of Jesus. It doesn't hinge on the death of Jesus. Lots of people died on crosses. It doesn't hinge on the Bible. It hinges on whether or not this happened. Because without the resurrection, what are we doing? We ought to be watching football this morning. We ought to be doing something different. Yeah, we can learn some stuff. But Jesus defeated death for all time, for all eternity. So that we too could live forever. The resurrection is so important. I want you to see how Paul described it to a church in Corinth. He says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, meaning for all people, then not even Christ has been raised. Because Jesus defeated death. Without Christ being raised, you have no resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Like I said, what are we doing here? You don't need to be listening to this. Worship would be silly. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then all of those who have fallen asleep in Christ, all those who have died faithful to Jesus, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the, this is the game. That everything hinges on the resurrection. It either happened or it didn't. So no matter what your belief is about various aspects of the faith, uh, no matter how much maybe someone in the church or someone who espouses to follow Jesus hurts you, those things matter, but they don't hinge. Our faith hinges on this. So even when you talk to people that aren't so sure about Christianity or Christian to this or that, hold on, time out. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? And if he did, then it, it changes everything. And after he rose, he didn't just appear to his he had 12 apostles, one killed himself, and then so he had 11, and then there was about 120 disciples of his that weren't the apostles, and he appeared to them over a period of about 40 days, and he appeared to 500 people at one time. So this isn't like two guys saw him alive, and they've told everybody, and we played the game of telephone, and now we've got Christianity. You know, he appeared to hundreds of witnesses, and then... After he rose and after 40 days, he then ascended into heaven and he is now enthroned as king. So his resurrection proves to everybody that he is God in the flesh. That what John said in chapter 1, the word was God and the word was with God, is true. Because none of us know anybody that rose from the dead. And then he ascends to heaven to show us he's where he belongs. And what we're going to look at here is Acts chapter 7. This, is, this was referenced a week or two ago. This is a guy, Stephen, who was the first person executed for following Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. And Paul, who wrote this book of Romans, he, Paul was there for this execution, and he was the one giving approval. Because remember, Paul was trying to stop the ministry of Jesus. And he gave approval. The people are stoning Stephen. Stephen is about to die. And this is what he says. Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
This is Jesus taking the seat of authority, the seat of power. He is at his father's right hand. So you go back through this. Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, right? Jesus came to earth. He lives a life that we could not live. He dies a death that only he could die, right? If any one of us were executed for sin, well, we'd be getting what sin, the wages of sin are death. That is the penalty of sin is death. So Jesus did not take your place or my place on the cross. Jesus took his place. Only he could do what he did. He defeats death in the resurrection, and then he returns to heaven and is enthroned and seated at the right hand of the Father in the seat of power and authority. This matters. This shows Jesus is the boss of everything and everyone. Whether or not you submit yourself and yield to him, you're still accountable to him. We all should pay attention to him because he will return. And when he returns, he will reign forever. He is sitting on the throne, but he is not reigning right now. He is allowing us to do what we're going to do. And he will return and reign forever. And what we're going to look at here is Revelation 22. This is, again, John as a much older man. Right? He was a teenager when he first started following Jesus. And now he's an old man about to die. He has this revelation and he records it. And these are Jesus' words. Here's what Jesus said. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. That's great news for some of us, and it is terrifying for some of us. It all depends on what we have done. Right? It matters what we have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It all starts and ends with Jesus. It doesn't start and end with who said what to you in church or what your Sunday school teacher taught you, your grandma taught you, or the hurt you were given or the blessing you were given. Those are things that are all part of our life, but it begins and it ends with Jesus. Are we going to follow him? And if you take all these bullet points and put it in a sentence, and this is where you could scribble this down. Here's the gospel of the good news is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, resurrected, ascended, and is returning according to the scriptures. That is the gospel of Jesus. So here it is defined for you in like an academic context. Well, so what? Right? What are the implications? Why does this matter? And we're going to get to that in a bit, but I want to point out to you how Paul responded to this. Remember, Paul was opposing the church, opposing the gospel, didn't believe it, and then he met Jesus, glorified Jesus, who had already ascended to heaven, met him face to face, and stops being an opponent of the church and starts being the proponent of the church. And here is his response to the gospel of Jesus. Once he understood it, he flipped. There was no dilly-dallying. He was on. And here's what he said. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul's response. Paul is obligated. Paul is eager. Paul is not ashamed. He sees that it's an obligation. It's his duty to take the gospel to the Hellenistic, right? The Greek, the Greek influenced world 
or the barbarians. Some translations say barbarians, non-Greeks, right? You either, you either see the world like the Greeks do or you're a savage. To the wise and the foolish, Jesus is for stupid people too. And it's a good thing for me because I wouldn't be here, right? The wise and the foolish, this matters. He wasn't just obligated, right? He wasn't just like, I've got this duty to fulfill. He is eager to do it, to fulfill his duty. I can't wait. He is obligated, he's eager, and he's not ashamed. There's a big difference between fulfilling an obligation and being obligated. And we see the difference because Paul tells us he's eager. What's the difference? Okay, you, you've experienced this all the time. You are obligated to pay your taxes, but you are eager to get that refund. We are obligated to jury duty, but we are eager to dodge it. We're obligated to a Thanksgiving dinner with the in-laws, but we are eager to watch the Cowboys lose on national television. (laughs) We're obligated to sit through a two-hour dance recital for the six minutes that your kid is performing, but you are so eager to see the glow in her face when she's all dolled up and up there doing her thing. Gentlemen, you are obligated to give your wife a back rub. I'll let you finish the thought. <laughs> Since some of you took a little of it. <laughs> and I think a lot of us feel the way Paul does and that we're obligated to do it. But so few of us are eager and therefore we often don't fulfill even the obligation because we're not eager. So I think that begs the question, why are we not eager to fulfill our obligation? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One, I think it was because we just don't get it. We don't really find the good news so appealing because we don't really digest and take personally the bad news. Our culture scoffs at the idea of sin, right? And we're told so often that everything about us is great. Oh, there are great things about us, but not everything about us is great. We scoff at the idea of sin or that we could be wrong or condemned and just live your truth into our own peril. We ignore the bad news, and therefore we neuter the good news. And over a few more verses that we're not going to get into today, it's going to be over the next few weeks, Paul and Jason will give you the bad news. I don't have to do that. I get to tell you all the good news. They'll tell you the bad news. And hopefully getting the bad news will help you be excited about the good news. And I think secondly, most of us don't really know how to do this, how to fulfill sharing the gospel. Because for many of us, our experience with coming to faith involves regular church attendance. And we, we come half the time, most of the time, and, and we listen and we learn and eventually we get it. And that's good. We need to get it and we need to respond. And then, but what we do is then we equate sharing the gospel with someone, helping someone be a follower of Jesus with an invitation to church. And we should invite people to church, not just to a Sunday morning event, but you invite them into the community. Let's walk with me. I'll show you what it is to follow Jesus. Let me share with you what I'm learning in Scripture and in my relationship with God. Because if we just invite people to a Sunday morning, this obligation gets fulfilled by whoever's doing this that day. And we all have the obligation. So you can get eager by really grasping the bad news and then inviting people into your life. And that'll help you fulfill your obligation to share the gospel. 
Now, Paul says he's not ashamed. I think a lot of times we read this and we think, I'm not afraid to share the gospel. Paul does not say he's not afraid of sharing the gospel. He says he's not ashamed. Well, why would anybody be ashamed of sharing the gospel? Well, let's set the context for you. Roll back a couple thousand years to hold up Jesus of Nazareth as Lord over Caesar as Lord was not only treasonous, but it would be preposterous to a citizen in Rome. Keep in mind, Israel was a conquered Roman territory that was about 2,500 road miles away from Rome. The Romans did not look favorably on the Jews. The Jews were constantly pushing back and rebelling and wanting to worship God in their way. Uh, They gave them a hard time. And then the Romans, I'm sorry, just as the Jews, the Romans looked down on the Jews, the Jews looked down on the city that Jesus was from, Nazareth. Uh, They did not like Nazareth. They didn't think anything good can come from Nazareth. So let me set the scene. Let's work with me on this analogy. Let's imagine that currently you have Trump or Obama in the White House. Okay, two very charismatic and galvanizing figures that you either loved or hated. People on one side or the other. The analogy doesn't work for our current occupant. It works for those guys. Okay. So picture either one of them in your head. They're in Washington, D.C., the most powerful city in the world, in the most powerful superpower or empire in the world. And it's 2,500 miles from here because that's about how far it is. And then imagine that someone, you, imagine you, you go there. You go to Rome. You go to D.C., to the National Mall. And you say, hey, that guy in the Oval Office is not the most powerful figure on the planet. Now you see why the analogy doesn't work, because they would agree with you if you said the current occupant. (laughs) That person is not the most powerful person on the planet. Actually, it's a carpenter from Ash Fork, Arizona. (laughs) You laugh. That's what they would do. And not only is he a carpenter from Ash Fork, he fancied himself to be savior of the world. And he regularly took on the city council from this little town called Prescott. And he irritated them so much and so frequently that they got him to appear before the governor. And he offended the governor so severely that the governor had him crucified. And we all know that only the worst of the worst get crucified. This guy can't possibly be Lord. And not only was he crucified, but it was on some place called Camelback Mountain. I mean, Camelback Mountain? What kind of godforsaken place must you live that you ride a camel? Civilized people get around on chariots and horses, and they live in cities. This guy thinks he's greater than Caesar? You think this guy's greater than Caesar? That is ridiculous. And if this is the gospel you're proclaiming right here in Rome, you are a fool. You're following a crucified carpenter from the middle of nowhere. You, sir, you, madam, are a fool. And by upholding this gospel that this Jesus character is greater than Caesar, you are jeopardizing your life. And now you're putting your family at risk. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are now on par with flat earthers, people who think that LeBron is better than MJ, and that somebody is better than Tom Brady. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Why isn't Paul ashamed? He tells us. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. 
First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. First to the Jew because Jesus is a Jew and he brought the message. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul's not ashamed because it brings salvation and it reveals the righteousness of God. And it does it by faith, not by works. You will never work hard enough and never be good enough for this world. But the gospel of Jesus says you don't need to be because he is. He's better. Let me get to what I mean by this. Here's how the righteousness of God is demonstrated. Paul tells the church in Corinth that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, there's that Jesus is sinless, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we get. We get to become the righteousness of God. You know you don't have even close to that righteousness. I know I don't. He tells the church in Colossae, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Look, once we were apart from God, we were in darkness. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, his death, through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish and free from accusation. Holy in his sight. If you look around at our world today, pointing out blemishes and hurling accusations is the favorite pastime of the high priests of our culture. As evidenced by cancel culture, you can never make a mistake. You can never learn, grow, and change your position unless it agrees with their orthodoxy. You can never be forgiven, even if you grovel and accept blame for things that you are not guilty of. You can never be holy or righteous enough to satisfy the holy standard of today's culture. You can only be canceled. And not only will you never be good enough for the culture, you're not good enough for you. You don't live up to your own expectation and standards of yourself. And then you have an accused conscience and you're unnecessarily burdened with guilt that you carry around and you see all your blemishes and you accuse yourself often. That's, that's me. You don't need to be good enough for the culture. You don't need to be good enough for you. Jesus is good enough. And so now what? What do we do? We've defined it. We've seen Paul's response to it. We've seen the implications of it. What do you do in light of the gospel? Well, it depends on who you are. If you've never responded to the gospel or you've had a muted response, and what I mean by muted response is that you believe this, that Jesus came, lived, died, resurrected, ascended, and is returning according to the scriptures, but it doesn't affect your life. You do what you want to do, not what Jesus would have you do. That's a muted response, which is really no response. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to respond to the gospel? Paul, I think, would tell you this. He had this issue was in the church in Rome. I plan many times to come to you in order that I might have a harvest among you. In the church, in the faithful religious people, look, you guys got to come to Jesus. You might be coming to church, but you got to come to Jesus. There are people in the Roman church, just like there are people in the church here today, who basically follow Jesus around, 
right, where you have familiarity with his teachings, you have relationships in his community, but you're not surrendered to Jesus. He isn't your Lord, but you want him to be your Savior. And he isn't your Lord because you're holding on to something. You're afraid of confessing something. You're afraid of giving up your illusion of control in order to give up that control to King Jesus. And if you think I'm talking to you, I am. Okay, that's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit poking you, prodding you. If you have church and Jesus experience, but you don't follow Jesus, you haven't responded to the gospel, what are you waiting for? This very message was preached 50 days after Jesus was executed to a, a, a thousands of religious people that had come to Israel for, to, to celebrate a festival. And Peter preached this message. And I want to share with you what he said and what happened in response. So here's what Peter says. He says, seeing what was to come, he, Peter's talking about David. He had just read a prophecy about Jesus to the people. So David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It was miraculous. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This should sound familiar. Resurrection of the dead, not abandoned, did not see, the body did not see decay, exalted to the right hand of God. He preached the message that you just heard. And what was their response? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They believed Peter. Now they knew they had to do something. It's not just believing the information. They had to do something. And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, us, thousands of years later, for all whom the Lord our God will call. If you are wondering if God is calling you to follow him, absolutely. He calls everyone. Not everyone answers. At the end, at during, we're going to sing a song in a moment here, and we're, our prayer team volunteers will be in the back of the room in Prescott Valley. They'll be off to the right of the stage. Some of you need to do this today. Like, you're going to get baptized. You have been fighting with Jesus instead of following Jesus, and the time has come. And some of you are like, I want to, but I don't know if I'm ready. I got questions. Go to our prayer team volunteers, and we'll help you get pointed in the direction for your next steps. But for those of you who have already responded, what do you do? We're going to take communion. I'm going to invite our ushers to come on down, uh, and they're going to pass communion. And in these trays are two cups stacked on top of each other. And you're going to, going to want to grab both, tray, uh, both cups from the bottom. And the cup on the bottom has a little piece of bread representing the body of Christ. The cup on top has a bit of grape juice representing the blood of Christ. And this is what was given on our behalf so that we can be forgiven of our sin. And we take communion to remember, to remember who Jesus is, what he's done. And today we're going to take it communally. So here in the room, 
for those of you online and those of you in Prescott Valley, I want us to take it all together. And what I want to read to you is a passage we read earlier from Isaiah. And I want to highlight some of the verbiage that Isaiah uses to show us what Jesus has done for us. So we go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is the message of the gospel. We are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again and again, our pain, our suffering, we considered, our transgressions, our, us, we, us, our. It is a community. Together, we have all done this and individually have done this. And yes, we individually have a relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. But collectively, we help people follow Jesus. We help each other. It's not just to show up here on Sunday. It's to get in the race. It's to follow Christ until this life is over and we pass from death to life. It's to finish the race. And you hear this, we all, our, we're all guilty and we're all can be forgiven. This gospel truly is for everyone. No matter how bad you think you are, no matter how good you used to be and you've wandered and strayed, the gospel is for everyone and it is found in Jesus. So together, online at home, in Prescott Valley and here in the room, please let's take the bread together. And in the name of Jesus, let us take the wine together. God, thank you so much that you've given us your son to lead us, to show us, to forgive us, to just guide us and then empower us to love people. I pray that those of us who carry your name and call ourselves followers of you, that despite our mistakes and our errors and our mistakes, that we would follow you faithfully. It will never be perfectly, but we would follow you faithfully and we would gladly accept the grace that comes through your son and then respond to it with grace for others and faithfully proclaiming your message. Thank you for your son and in his name we pray, amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.